Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe, and this is Speaking of Race. Hey guys, James Watson's been in the news a lot lately. James Watson, you mean um, Jim Watson, the, the guy who helped Francis Crick discover the double helix structure of DNA, right? Yeah. Oh, he's pretty old. Is, what, is, what is he discovering these days? Uh, well, nothing, it turns out, but we are discovering that he is remarkably and very publicly racist and eugenicist in his views. You don't say! <laughs> We're not just now discovering it. You know, Watson's been talking about these genetic differences between Africans and non-Africans for a very long time and publicly since at least 2007. That's when he said in an interview that he wished everyone were equal, but that anyone who has dealt with black employees knows otherwise. And then it went downhill from there. I kind of remember that. That was about 10 or so years ago. So what happened this week? Well, Watson, who's now in his 90s, not that age is an excuse, as I can attest, was interviewed for another PBS documentary and just came out this month. It dealt specifically with his controversial views about race. Mm. And in the film, one of the interviewers asked him if his views had changed at all. And this is what he said. I would like for them to have changed. There would have to be new knowledge, which says that your nurture is much more important than nature. But I haven't seen any knowledge. And there's a difference on the average between blacks and whites on IQ tests. I would say the difference is it's genetic. It made the news this past week because the lab that Watson headed for much of his career, which, by the way, is the same lab that housed the eugenics record office of Charles Mm. Davenport, Mm -hmm. has finally publicly rejected Watson and removed his honorary status as a retired lab member after he made that statement on the documentary. They censured him all the way back to 2007 but they hadn't ever completely severed ties with him until last week. Wow, that's a that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, isn't that yeah. crazy? Yeah. I mean, here we have this Nobel Prize winning scientist, one so famous that we've all, or at least I did, learn about him in our high school biology textbooks. And here he is promoting this non-scientifically supported personal <laughs> viewpoint that race and intelligence are linked. It has baffled his longtime colleagues for quite a while Because it seems to be so much more linked to personal opinion than the kind of rigorous science that he was known for. Yeah, that's a really important distinction. What he's saying is that he thinks that it's genetic intelligence and the difference between the races. But let's be absolutely clear here. He isn't drawing on any science to support that claim. It's just like, well... Black people score lower on IQ tests, and I have trouble hiring them to work in my lab. So I think genetics is a really cool thing since I got a Nobel Award for my work in it. And so personally, I think that there has to be a link between the intelligence and the races and the genes. Yeah, and and it's scary because it is an entirely unscientific personal viewpoint, but it poses the danger of looking really sciencey because for Pete's sake, it's James Watson who's saying it. Exactly. And it's a great way to kick off our episode because today what we're supposed to talk about is the contemporary incarnations of the race and intelligence debate. Ah. <laughs> well, thanks Watson for a great segue into the topic. Yeah. Okay, so Jim, you're you're the acknowledged expert on this stuff, so we should just ask you to carry this episode by yourself. What do you think, Joe? 
Yes, totally. I mean, he already looks kind of omniscient and godlike with that white flowing beard and all. Right. Or maybe maybe Dumbledore like, I don't know. Any anyway, erudite. So yeah, you're on. Those are nice synonyms for old guys. Thanks a lot. <laughs> old but not as racist as Watson. They're and learned. Very learned. <laughs> Okay, so let's recap. Last time we ended with The Bell Curve, which was the best-selling 1994 book by Richard Herrenstein and Charles Murray. That's the one that repeated the old notion that we've been talking about all the way through the series, that each racial group had a defined intelligence factor, G. The range of intelligence for members of each race was limited, so that, at least on average, Asian people were supposed to have higher intelligence than whites, uh, whites were supposed to have higher intelligence than blacks, and that all of this difference was a matter of genetics. Right. So that was the bell curve. And I think we ought to start today by grilling Jim about the book's reception, because there was a lot of support for it, but also a lot of backlash, right? There was a big deal in both directions with the book. The bell curve sold almost a half a million copies within just a few months of publication. And it continued to be read and cited throughout the 1990s. It had Mm -hmm. a political impact. It was a very big deal. And even as recent as today, you can find pop science people that look to it as as an authoritative statement about uh, race and intelligence. But that's not necessarily because the book was recognized then or now as good science. I mean, it was really crappy science, but it looked like it was scientific, at least to the news media. Well, just after the book went on sale, Pioneer Fund-supported psychologist Linda Gottfriedson wrote a high-profile supportive review of the book in the Wall Street Journal. And then she got 51 other professors, all, in her words, experts in intelligence and allied fields, to sign the statement. So it was a carefully engineered and, again, pioneer-supported media plug. Huh. So Pioneer Fund, it has not died. No. Want to hear something funny? Yes. I knew someone on that list. Of the list of 51 people? My undergrad professor, Vince Sarich, who I actually wrote a letter for him to get tenure. Vince Sarich taught my human variation course at Berkeley, and he signed that statement. That's crazy. Well, who are the other, you know, 50? For starters, Joe, there was your very good friend from a couple of episodes ago, (laughs) Raymond Cattell. Oh, Oh, my buddy Cattell. Yeah, he was the famous social psychologist who popularized this idea that dumb people were out reading smart people, leading to the inevitable decline of American intelligence. He was the one I knew of because of his work in psychometric methods. And he was a pretty well-respected guy in his time. Were all of these people mainstream scientists? Well, it depends upon who you ask. I mean... They they all had, almost all of them had serious name recognition. But here's some of the pioneer-supported uh, researchers that signed it. Thomas Bouchard, Jr., who is very important twin studies researcher, we'll talk about in a minute. Hans Eysenck, who conducted the postdoc for Arthur Jensen, who is, was also a signatory. Jean-Philippe Rushton, Robert Plowman. Now, wait, I don't recognize all those names, but some of them are people we've just talked about in the last several episodes for sure. That's right. So many of the signatories came out of that pioneer-funded base that was trying to make the argument about racial differences. So this smells like a typical pioneer-funded thing. It's a little bit of racism, a little bit of eugenics thrown in. Yeah, that's that's exactly what was going on. Thomas Bouchard Jr. is a psychologist and a geneticist who's still alive today. And by the 1990s, 
He had been conducting a major pioneer-funded U.S. study of identical twins reared apart. Does that sound familiar? Did Cyril Burt do something like that? Yeah, that Bouchard. Exactly like that. <laughs> yeah. Bouchard was one of the signatories. So, so this is following in this long tradition you were just referencing, Jim, of trying to use twin studies to figure out which aspects of human intelligence are inherited, which ones are nature, that is, and which are environmental or which are nurture. nurture. And that was Cyril yeah, Burke's favorite stuff. Bouchard's study was called the Minnesota Study of Twins Reared Apart, or MISTRA. And if you've ever heard anything about the freaky findings of twin studies, like the Jim twins or the two identical twins separated at birth who grew up to drive the same kind of car and vacation at the same Florida beach every year. Yeah, those stories are quite likely to have come out of this particular study more than any other twin study. So does that mean I'm genetically destined to drive a seafoam green Vespa with a sidecar? What? (laughs) Sorry, I'm I'm afraid it's in your genes, Joe. You're just, you you know, you're stuck with it. Yes, that's good. The Minnesota study was dedicated to finding a genetic basis for that general intelligence that we keep talking about, which other people then use to support a genetic basis for the difference in intelligence between blacks and whites. Now he basically sounds like Cyril Burt plus C.D. Darlington, who we talked about last time. He's playing the Burt role, talking about the the level of heritability, and other people are playing the Darlington role, uh, talking about the difference between races. Huh. And, and and Joe Robert Plowman, have you heard of him? He was on the Wall Street <laughs> Journal piece too. No, I haven't heard of him before. You mentioned him just now. Was he another twin studies person? He's been studying twins since the 1970s. Huh. In the mid 1990s, he was the lead author on a study looking for associations between various kinds of DNA markers and IQ scores. And his team investigated 100 DNA markers using a new technique at the time, the same one that was used in the O.J. Simpson trial. And they found that a handful of these markers were statistically associated with low versus high IQ among these white kids that they were looking at. They made no statements about race, but of course, we know that that's just the beginning of the issue. What do you mean it's just the beginning? Well, hang on. We'll talk more about that later in the episode. Ooh, a cliffhanger. Plowman, to be continued. All right. So, Jim, a second ago, I heard you say the name Jean-Philippe Rushton. He was one of those people, right, who signed the the Wall Street Journal article. I, I feel like I'm pretty sure I've heard that name before. Well, you should have because I'm sure you at one time had a copy of his 1995 Pioneer Fund-supported book, Race, Evolution, and Behavior, that argues whites and East Asians have wider hips than blacks because they give birth to larger brain babies. No, there's no way I would have bought a book like that. You didn't, but you were a member of the American Anthropological Association back then, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yes, back in the 1990s I was. When I was a child. The Pioneer Fund loved Rushton's book so much that they paid to have copies mailed to everyone on the AAA's mailing list in 1999. I received two copies, one through the American Anthropological Association mailing list in 1999, and then they did another edition and and mailed it out to another set of mailing lists, and I was on the American Association of Physical Anthropologists list, so I got the 2000 edition too. 
So Rustin, who who was this magical Rustin guy? He was a psychologist at the University of Western Ontario, and his work was all about trying to make a pseudo-evolutionary argument for racial differences in behavior in particular. He believed that Negroids, and that is his term, that's what he uses consistently as Negroids, were evolutionarily specialized for physical endowment. And oh. that leads to greater athletic prowess and also greater criminal activity, hmm. whereas Mongoloids were specialized in the more mental and uh, and social aspects. And Caucasoids were somewhere in between these two, but they fell closer to the Mongoloids on his spectrum. He relied on an evolutionary ecological idea called R and K selection. For listeners who have not heard those terms R and K selection before, biologists in the 1960s came up with the idea that there were basically two kinds of reproductive strategies that we can observe between different species in the natural world. So R selection is a strategy that an organism will have lots and lots of babies, but won't invest very much time or energy into raising any individual baby. I always think of finding Nemo as being a good example of our selection. There's lots of baby fish eggs. They're going to end up being food, but just enough, or in this case, just one will survive. So our selected organisms typically grow fast and also typically have smaller brains. Oh, like hamsters. So when I was a kid... I got this hamster and, you know, it turned out she was pregnant. Okay. Okay. I don't want to hear the story. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, a hamster would be R-selected. Now the other <laughs> kind is K-selected. And K-selected reproductive strategies involve having very few babies, but investing tons of time and resources into them so that every baby has a much higher likelihood of survival. These tend to grow slowly and have big brains. Uh, elephants are a good example of K-selected. And as a species, all humans are K-selected. But Rushton suggested that that wasn't true, that some human groups, races, were R-selected for small brain sizes and lots of kids. And guess who he thought fit into that category? Uh-oh. Uh, uh, let me guess. His so-called Negroids and probably Mongoloids and Caucasoids are K-selected? Oh, even these words, it's like they're pulled from another century. Yeah. It's funny that you should put it that way, because if you sense a throwback to 19th century cranial capacity measurements, you're exactly right. His key variable was cranial capacity differences oh between God. three racial groups. What in the world? You're kidding. Swear to God. Huh. So we're talking the very same measurement that Samuel George Morton used in the first half of the 19th century, that one. Yep, that's it. And yeah. you got to remember, for this major opus that Rushton put together, he did no primary research with his millions of dollars of funding from the Pioneer Fund. Huh. Instead, what he did was he spent his time pulling data points out of a bunch of unrelated studies, categorizing those data points into one of his three races, and then using the funding to print up the abridged editions and to mail them out and to advertise and to try and get people to talk up this. Oh, so that's how we got copies. It was the Pioneer Fund money that distributed all that stuff. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. But surely these conclusions don't really hold water if you look closely. As Eric said a few seconds ago, these works weren't persuasive because they were recognized as good science. Rather, they were rhetorically persuasive. That rhetoric kept the argument going. 
Oh, okay. So there's no doubt that the bell curve and Rushton's book reached a lot of people, but let's talk about the backlash now because the bell curve was, of course, highly controversial. Yeah, the, the backlash to the bell curve was pretty stiff this time around. Not, not you know, like tear gas and shotgun stuff. Okay. okay, that's true. In the 90s, it was more like concerned academics holding symposia stiff. So academics don't necessarily have to fire off tear gas anymore or something like that. But I, I recall a big backlash. Stephen Jay Gould, for instance, he reissued his attack on the long history of race science called Mismeasure of Man, which was first printed in the 80s. And then I remember they founded an institute for the study of academic racism. I, I remember there were articles about bell curve in Time and Newsweek. The Southern Poverty Law Center weighed in. Critics called out the Pioneer Fund. Individual scientists got actual airtime. And Charles Murray, one of the authors of the bell curve, well, he kind of crawled back into the shadows. So can we say that the scientific argument connecting race and intelligence was completely discredited by the early 2000s, thanks to all this pushback against the bell curve? Yeah, I mean, when the single largest biological survey ever conducted, the Human Genome Project was completed, the president of the United States got up and said, look, there's no genetic basis for races. That had to finally kill off the old biological determinism that linked intelligence and race. So, yay, they did it. We should podcast high fives. Woo! Podcast right, high fives. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Stop me if you've heard this one before. Ooh, are you going to tell a joke in celebration of our podcast and history's final victory over biological determinism? Yeah, right. That's what this is. Uh, so <laughs> there's a group of people that walk into a building and they take an IQ test and then they walk down the hall and they get their DNA sequenced. And the so-called scientists that are in charge of this find out that the white folks average about 12 and a half points higher on the IQ test than the black folks who are in the group. Then they look at the DNA and they find there are a few dozen single nucleotide polymorphisms that vary between the two groups and are correlated with the IQ scores. And when they look at all the SNPs, these single nucleotide polymorphisms, they find that they are correlated with a little less than a tenth of a point of IQ. And so about six weeks before their paper is published in some semi-reputable journal, the headlines come out in the lay press that scientists find genetic basis of inferior black IQ. Does that sound like something you've heard in the last two decades? Wait, wait, wait. That, that wasn't a joke. That's horribly misrepresented scientific findings. I, I get the bad feeling about this. Are you talking about stuff that happened after the Human Genome Project? Yep, that's that's what I'm talking about. I'm referring to this trope of genetic studies of intelligence or whatever passes for intelligence in a given study from the past two decades or so. So we didn't actually win over biological determinism then? Wait, so after the discrediting of early 20th century intelligence studies and after the seeming death of intelligence and, and race stuff in the 1960s, and after the wave of books and studies and documentaries that discredited the bell curve, it hasn't gone away. Uh -huh. uh. It, it has changed, though. And I'll talk a little bit about some of these more recent studies and see if you can figure out how it's changed. There's been a ton of stuff, but we really only have time to talk about a handful of the more significant developments. Okay. 
I want to start by talking about one of my very favorites, in part because it really did go through that cycle of headlines and and then ultimate refutation of the work. In 2004, there was a young geneticist at the University of Chicago named Bruce Lawn, and he decided to try to look at human evolution by examining genes that might have influenced increasing brain size in our species, since that's one of our species' uh, evolutionary tracks. His lab identified variants in two genes that had been previously associated with a pathological brain condition known as microcephaly. Now, that's a word that you probably heard over the last couple of years because that's one of the, the scarier symptoms of the Zika virus and the Zika oh, infection. Yeah. yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. Okay, so microcephaly, but I don't get it. How does that play into the evolution of large brains? Well, they figured it was involved in controlling brain size, that these genes would be associated with brain size. Uh, More importantly, for our purposes, they found out that these genes associated with microcephaly had been under strong selection in the relatively recent past one mutation appearing about 37,000 years ago and undergoing selection, and another mutation occurring about 5,800 years ago and undergoing strong selection. Hmm. Okay, so that is really recent across the whole span of human history, but what did that tell them? Well, they found these mutations and they just assumed that they were selected for bigger brains and therefore greater intelligence and they see that they're more common outside of Africa, and they went on to speculate cautiously in the science article and less cautiously in public that the older variants may have been associated with the peopling of Europe, while a more recent one may have been associated with the emergence and spread of domestication from the Middle East about 10,000 years ago, and the development of cities and written languages, in other words, civilization. Okay, so they're talking Mm -hmm. basically about the genes of civilization being more common outside of Africans. Oh, I think I can see where this is going. Yeah. And and so this study shows up in the lay press, uh, an article in the National Review where, Eric, uh, would you read this quote for me? It's going to be a bad quote, isn't it? (laughs) It's a bad one, but just read it. Okay, okay, okay. If different human groups of different common ancestry have different frequencies of genes influencing things like, for goodness sake, brain development, then our cherished national dream of a well-mixed and harmonious meritocracy with all groups equally represented in all niches at every level may be unattainable. You go from making these wild leaps about the association of genes to behavioral characteristics to social policy. Hmm, that sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. And much to no one's surprise that knows anything about this by now, the author of this article didn't offer a follow-up when Lon's Chicago labs and several other labs, including one piece that even had Rushton collaborating on it, found that these genes have no association with variation in normal brain size, and they don't have any association with IQ scores. Wow. Okay. So so that's like early 2000s, 2004, 2005, right? There's this brain size study. What else is really significant in this world of race and intelligence over the last decade? I'm still trying to figure out what the differences are from the pre-human genome project stuff, Jim. The most important things that have come out recently are the GWASs. What are those? 
R-O-U-S's, rodents of unusual size? Inconceivable! Pregnant hamsters? <laughs> no, 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 no. GWAS stands for Genome-Wide Association Study. As you remember from our Human Genome Project episode, all humans are overwhelmingly the same genetically, varying by just a small fraction of a percent in the nucleotides, the sequence information in our DNA. Right. So the four letters A, C, G, and T stand for adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine, the building blocks of our DNA. And so you're saying we have exactly the same letters in almost all the same positions throughout our 3 billion pairs of nucleotides. Exactly. But in a small number of places, you know, I'll have an A for adenine where Eric has a G for guanine. That's called a single nucleotide polymorphism or a SNP. And a GWAS is looking for these SNPs throughout the genome in a large number of people and adding up what they have or didn't have and weighting these different SNPs to come up with what's called a polygenic score for each individual. The association part comes in when the geneticists try to find a set of SNPs that are statistically associated with different outcomes. And they've done this for diabetes and schizophrenia, brain size, or some other measurement of intelligence. So just to be clear, GWAS, we're referring to a type of study that uses similar methods that is relatively recent. And there's a whole bunch of these out there, right? Yeah, tons. Are we just back to trying to show some relationship between one biological variable and then some IQ scores? Unfortunately, that would actually be better than what's been done for the most part. Uh, uh -huh. The outcome measure that has been settled on in most of these studies over the past five to 10 years has been educational attainment. And I hope you can feel my air quotes coming through the podcast <laughs> because these large databases of sequence information, including 23andMe, which is one of the ones in the most recent study, also tend to have some kind of information on how much school a person has had. And that's become the analyzed variable. So in other words, they're taking this years of education measure and interpreting that as a proxy for how successful someone is in life, maybe even how smart they are. Huh. That's, that is actually possibly an even worse measure of mental ability than actual intelligence testing. Seriously. So one of the most recent reports like this came out just last summer, July, in Nature Genetics. And they said that they had identified 1,271 SNPs that were associated with edu years, is their variable term, among 1.1 million European descent individuals. The polygenic score that they composed of these 1,271 SNPs statistically predicts between 11 and 13% of the variation. Okay, okay, wait. So between... 87 and 89% of this variation isn't even accounted for by over 1,000 genetic markers. And this study's only about white people? That's what it sounds like, right, Jim? Okay, so why is there all this fuss over this limited-sized pool? Because, again, it hits the lay press, and outlets like the New York Times carried two relatively favorable pieces the week that the study came out that made it sound like we found some definitive association between genes and education. Of course. But there are no genes in these studies associated with years of education. Even if you could turn years of education into a meaningful variable, you have to remember that GWAS picks up 
these over a thousand genetic markers, not genes, but just little spots that they see differences across the three billion nucleotides. And each single nucleotide polymorphism accounts for about one one hundredth of a percent of variation in their years of education. And we have several mountains of data about the environmental effects on educational success that are much more solid than this airball genetics nonsense that just drives me crazy. Huh. Yeah, I'm familiar with the literature documenting the really strong effects that safe and secure and healthy settings with supportive caregivers have on educational success. We really don't need to look at someone's DNA for that, nor will it tell us anything nearly as powerful as will the environmental work. But wait a minute, now that now that we mention it, how does race even figure into this GWAS stuff if all the subjects were of European descent anyway? Well, that, that's a very interesting point. The polygenic score didn't work at all well for African-Americans. Ah, uh, of course. <laughs> uh-huh. And even within the European subjects, the GWAS appears to have different effects, different predictions, varying from country to country based on the educational system and, and the environmental setting of each so-called country population. But remember, you know, going back to Bert and everybody, the twin studies were all within population studies, and they really shouldn't have been used to generalize to between races, but those twin studies provided all the fuel that Jensen needed to ignite his racist fire back in 1969. Well, thank goodness there are no more Arthur Jensen's anymore, right? I mean, yeah, there are these specialized GWAS studies, but this stuff is just way too complex for the general public to even have heard of it, right? Not entirely. Sorry. <laughs> Again, no. I I'm sure you've heard of the work of Noah Rosenberg's lab. So, yeah, he's the evolutionary geneticist who published the cluster studies of human genetic variation in 2002 that those biological essentialists claim as yet more evidence for biological race. That's right. And if folks want to learn more about that, they should go to our episode, Race and the Human Genome Project. So it was Rosenberg's work that was amplified by a New York Times science writer named Nicholas Wade. Mm. Wade wrote a book just a few years ago called A Troublesome Inheritance. Oh, I remember this one. It made a big splash. Yeah, right. Something like that. Uh, <laughs> he used Rosenberg's cluster results, and Wade made the argument that differing natural selection processes had driven the disparity in behavior between the three main human groups today. Can you guess what groups that Wade's focused on? Oh, 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 I know. Asian, white, and black? <laughs> Ka-ching! You got it. <laughs> <laughs> So Wade's big argument is that complex behaviors such as tendencies towards aggression or willingness to submit to law or authority oh or even the ability to create a civilization might differ genetically between these three groups. And that that difference was layered on top of culture explaining not only why white people colonize the rest of the world, but also why for for example, we continue to have higher rates of crime among African-Americans in the U.S. It's this bold and, and really terrible misrepresentation of the actual data that we have. It looks a lot like Rushton's arguments that he made back in the mid-90s, and we have no evidence whatsoever of the kinds of genetic predictions of behaviors that he's suggesting in this book. Sounds a lot like Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, only replacing the biological determinism from the environment with biological determinism from the genes. 
yeah, that's it. You know, it's just what the other side of that coin. But it also sounds like a lot of the old stuff that we've been talking about for all these last few episodes. Well, maybe a difference is that the backlash is getting more intense. The backlash to Wade's book was really severe, like maybe even louder than the backlash to the bell curve. But making these controversial claims that science supports a biological concept of race and the superiority of one race over others sells books, particularly in this political environment. Mm-hmm. That brings us up to – Yes. To who? To what? Well, remember Robert Plowman? Aha! One of the signatories of the Wall Street Journal piece supporting the bell curve that we talked about at the start of the episode. Cliffhanger resolved. Like many of the people we've discussed so far, he was trained as a psychologist, but he spent his career doing behavioral genetics. In 2002, Plowman was actually ranked among the 100 most eminent psychologists in the history of the science. He's continued to publish on twin study stuff since the 1970s, and he, just last month, he wrote a Scientific American blog called In the Nature-Nurture War, Nature Wins. Um, that's not very subtle. <laughs> no, not terribly. It was a promotion for his new book titled Blueprint, How DNA Dictates Who We Are. That's maybe even less subtle. <laughs> you work on his titles. I, I mean, I think they're great, actually. If I was trying to make up two <laughs> two sentence fragments that could like perfectly describe the idea of genetic determinism, I could not do better than those two titles. Huh. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. But in all fairness, you got to understand, Plowman is a true believer. He even collaborated with the big Chinese project on the genetics of genius run by the world's leading genome sequencing firm, BGI. They're looking to genetically engineer future geniuses, and Plowman continues to make the case that we have many genetic influences on intelligence. That's something that's almost certainly true. And then he also says that these genetic influences significantly outweigh the environmental influences. And that is something that is certainly not true. And there's already a severe critique of his book out by a historian of science. Woohoo! <laughs> That's right. Nathaniel Comfort situates Plowman's new book right in the line with Wade's troublesome inheritance, Charles Murray's bell curve, and even with Jensen's work. See, we're really good at that. What's that? We're good at situating. Joe, we're good at situating things. We situate. Oh, great. Okay, so back to Plowman. Given that we've now got all of this evidence that it's way more complicated than the simple genetic determinism story, how does he make this argument? Well, his main point in this book, as it suggests from the title, is that soon we'll have the ability to have a complete DNA blueprint for every child. And once we have that, we can look at that sequence information and design individual learning plans for a kid so each kid will get the best education possible. So in his world, all kids are special needs kids, he says. Okay, so like personalized medicine except for education. That sounds kind of nice. Sounds like Gattaca. Well, okay, so what's wrong with the book? It doesn't sound nearly as extreme as Wade or Jensen. Oh, but it is in so many ways. First, the book suffers from Maslow's hammer syndrome. In this case, the hammers are the GWAS and polygenic scores, and the nails are basically all personality variables, including intelligence. So you mean he's just taking the GWAS scores and kind of indiscriminately trying to use them to predict all kinds of things they aren't necessarily related to? Exactly. 
we've already pointed out what some of the issues with GWASs are, and Plowman doesn't talk about race at all in his book, maybe because the polygenic scores are almost as population-specific as the concept of heritability among twins was in Jensen's work. But at the end of the day, Plowman comes up with the same kind of non-solutions that Jensen did and Hernstein and Murray did, saying that our genes are our fate and all we can do is muck about at the edges by trying to improve living and educational conditions. Uh-huh. Okay, guys. So we, we have now done four episodes on the history of race and IQ testing. We've gotten right up to the present with this stuff. What have we learned? That it's like Groundhog Day that the scientists keep trying new technologies, but unlike the movie, there's not going to be a rom-com happy ending to this saga. (laughs) You're right, Jim, but I mean, it does seem like when we take the big, long arc of this history, there are some patterns that are worth pointing out. So the challenge you posed earlier, Jim, was what has and hasn't changed over the material that we've been looking at in these four episodes, right? I mean, the most obvious thing here seems to be sort of bar none, that despite actual centuries of research we still haven't found any evidence that race and intelligence are biologically linked. I mean, that almost feels too obvious to even start with, to point out, but then there are the James Watsons or the Charles Murrays or even the Plowmans of the world who keep suggesting maybe we just haven't found it yet. So we, we do actually have to start there. Yeah, I mean, it's important to point that out. That hasn't changed. There is no scientific evidence that demonstrates this hard link between the category that we call race and the complex behaviors that we identify as intelligence. But I think there are some things that have changed. Yeah, listening to Jim throughout this episode, I think I figured it out. What's what's changed, especially in the more recent work? It's pretty obvious if you think about it. I mean, with all the money that's been invested in modern genomics, these new studies are all making basically the same claims about race and intelligence, but they're using the language of genomics rather than the looser biological claims made prior to the Human Genome Project. That sounds right to me. The, The biological determinism that we've seen going all the way back to Francis Galton in the 19th century, that's now hardened into a genomic determinism, like what we see with Plowman's brand new book about DNA as our quote unquote blueprint. We're convinced that everything reduces to genes. So there must be a polygenic score for race and a polygenic score for intelligence. Those genes must have been parceled out at different times in the evolution of humankind. So we must have Africans with one set of SNPs, Asians with a different set of SNPs, Europeans with a different set of SNPs, and so on and so forth. For the most part, it's like everything else that we've documented in our entire podcast series. Whatever is the hot new technique is what the racial realists use to divide us up into these categories. Now it's the language of genomics and GWASs, polygenic scores, and CRISPR gene editing. By the way, there's an eight-week course from Harvard available online that teaches you how to edit genes. That's really all that's changed. But that makes it sound like there isn't anything here but a rhetorical shift going on. Like, it's all still built upon the same nature-beats-nurture framework that we've seen through the entire 20th century. In fact, even Watson himself used that language in the PBS interview he just did. He literally states in that quote that we read at the beginning of the episode that he believes nature trumps nurture, just like Plowman in that Scientific American blog. Well, I don't know. Maybe it would help us to pull this all together if we took a step back and kind of looked at how we get to that conclusion. So let's just lay out the whole mess. How did scientists get to the point where they said that race and intelligence are connected, nature beating nurture to oversimplify it? Why do we think that they are wrong? Well, first, you have to 
start with the fact that scientists assume that differences in performance on some kind of test or some number of years of education signifies it differences in something called general intelligence. But, of course, what we're counting as intelligence reflects the tester's cultural and personal values, things that we rank more highly, that we consider more important. And there's a lot of variation in that across time and culture. This, I think, is where history provides a powerful corrective that geneticists, to pick one group of people, conveniently ignore. There are cultural and economic and dietary and linguistic and educational and climate-based and political, even microbial differences between people groups that have accumulated over century upon century. We de-emphasize these innumerable historical contingencies that end up feeding into differences on tests. We just chalk difference up to nature like Jim Watson did. Well, I think the problem with that viewpoint is that it's remarkably oversimplified, right? When we say that traits like intelligence are determined by one's polygenic score for intelligence, then we just wave away the significance of all these historical and cultural factors that you just listed, Eric. We've learned that biologists and psychologists like Cattell, Jensen, Rushton, Flynn, Plowman, they really aren't the best authorities on intelligence and race. This stuff really has to be looked at from a more holistic perspective that takes history and culture into account. That's right, cultural anthropologist. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> And, and while we're each throwing in our perspective from whatever our home discipline is here, let me add the human biology part. What's crazy is that the science is beginning to demonstrate that these cultural and historical factors impact the biology of the individuals. Yeah, one of the coolest parts of the unintended consequences of the Human Genome Project was that it demonstrated that we actually have far fewer genes than we previously believed. I think the number is fewer than 20,000 now. Even organisms like rice have more genes than we do. In the absence of gene material to actually create complex traits like intelligence, researchers begin to resurrect a concept that came about much earlier in the 20th century called epigenetics. Now, epigenetic research has demonstrated that the effects of nurture actually transform the nature part of the equation. So genetic determinism could itself have non-genetic determinants. Yeah, one of the reasons genetic determinism holds on is because of the stature of some of the longtime promoters of it, like Watson, but also like the others we've mentioned in this episode. See, like I said, Groundhog Day, never going away. Uh. <laughs> so, okay, so aside from just being inaccurate and promoting racism, those are pretty bad consequences. Are there other implications that we should be worried about here? I don't know about you guys, but one of the biggest for me is that a belief in genetics and intelligence very easily slips us right back into those old consequences of determinism, such as a desire to eliminate individuals and groups who just don't meet some of our predetermined standards. I know that that sounds like a leap in the 21st century, but you got to listen to this quote from Jim Watson when he was on an older PBS documentary over 10 years ago. If you really are stupid, I would call that a disease. Stupidity is, you know, a disease of the brain. The lower 10% who really have difficulty, you know, even in elementary school, what's the cause of it? Uh, a lot of people would like to say, well, it was, you know, poverty and things like that, but it probably isn't. And uh, so I'd like to get rid of, you know, help that lower 10%. Oh, that's the documentary. So right after he makes that statement, he goes on to talk about how great it would be if we use genetic modification to make all women pretty, isn't it? 
Yes, and that's not even the worst thing that happens in that documentary. Okay, guys, I think we've got to try and wrap this up. All right, Jim, you did a really good job. There's a lot going on here. Yep. And remember, we only hit the tip of the iceberg here. This stuff goes much farther down. Ooh, I bet we can do a revisited episode in a year. We see what else has emerged, especially when we get to see what the reaction to Plowman's book is. Okay, 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 okay. It's time to stop talking, gentlemen. (laughs) I do want to say one thing, which is that since our last episode, we have gotten both Twitter and Instagram accounts. So we are in the big time now. So if there are any listeners left out there, thank you so much for listening to our series (laughs) on race and intelligence. We're going to kind of take a new tack in our next episode. And in the meantime, we'd love to have comments from you about what you like and don't like, things you'd like to hear us talk more about. On Facebook, you can find us at SOR Podcast and on Twitter and Instagram at Speaking of Race. All right, guys, where are we going next time? Uh, Thugheads. You've been listening to Speaking of Race. I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. I'm Eric, the historian of science. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you soon. 